yeah, something of your character tonight and your grace. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Joy is going to come read for us. Thanks, Joy. everyone. Uh, as Jono said, my name's Joy, if I haven't met you already. Um, and I'll be reading tonight's sermon passage, which is Genesis chapter 38. I'll give you guys a minute to find it. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Tyra. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. In your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road, Am? Here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord.
G'day everyone. Thanks, Joy, for reading for us. Uh, the bloke who read the Bible at our 10 o'clock service this morning, before he started reading, said, what the hell is this doing here? Uh, that was his reaction to this passage. What the hell is this doing here? And uh, well may you be asking the same question. It's, uh, it's a tricky one. I read an article this week that said this. We need to hear this grisly account in Genesis 38 because this is our world. Uh, we're in the book of Genesis and it can feel every bit 5,000 years ago as you read through this very old story of God's uh, big picture of his salvation for his world uh, by his people uh, and it can feel very distant and disconnected from our reality and I said last week as we come to spend a few months in this section of the Bible that predominantly we're going to be spending our time thinking about the big picture things of God and his plans and purposes but this is one of those weeks where the very big picture of God's plan of salvation throughout the centuries very much touches upon the grisly, the everyday, the, the, the nitty-gritty of our lives. Uh, this is our world. It's the world of sexual abuse and the world of lies and scandals and hypocrisy and victims. And all of a sudden, this ancient Near Eastern drama feels very much like our world like our drama that goes on all around us. And uh, despite some of the, the cultural and religious hurdles that we're going to get to in due course, hopefully, uh, this is very readily identifiable with the world that we live in. And some of us might be able to read this chapter with a bit of a shrug of the shoulders and a level of distance and disassociation. But I suspect there are many of us who very quickly and painfully make the link from what you read in Genesis 38 to what you know either of your own experience or the experience of someone very close to you. The experience of shame and guilt, of, of abuse, of victimisation. Either that's happened to you or someone that you love or know or possibly what you have done to someone else. And so, all of a sudden, this very distant ancient Near Eastern drama comes very close and very painful to your own heart and your own experience. And here in this story, as that might be the case, and even if we're not feeling our own pain acutely right now, we're feeling some sense of awkwardness and you wouldn't have to think very hard to make the link to someone or somewhere where a story like this is unfolding in your kind of realm of experience. And we're going to be reminded how the, the God of the Bible doesn't seek to kind of paper over that or ignore that or excuse that, but that he himself encapsulates that into the story of his grand picture of salvation and he redeems that in a way that enables us to find wholeness and healing and peace 
by his grace and his kindness to us in Jesus. And so if this story that's just been read out for you does bring up feelings of guilt and shame or feelings of pain and hurt, I want you to be reassured very quickly that God's grace to us in Jesus doesn't diminish that but invites us to bring that to him. He is the God of all faithfulness, the God of all comfort and he offers forgiveness, he offers cleansing, he offers freedom and peace because he doesn't paper over it, he doesn't ignore it, he doesn't excuse it but in the Lord Jesus He says, come and I will take that shame and that guilt upon me. I will absorb it in my own justice and mercy at the cross where Jesus died for the sins of the world and where he offers to all of us peace and wholeness, cleansing and forgiveness. The book of Hebrews that John has already referenced a couple of chapters later in talking about the cross says, consider Jesus scorned its shame. It's a very strange phrase, to scorn the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross, the nakedness, the isolation, the rejection, the pain, Jesus scorned that shame in the sense that he said, that shame will not stop me from enduring the cross for the joy set before me, the joy of dealing with sin and judgment and inviting a global and eternal people into fellowship and peace and security with him forever. And we go all these thousands of years back to this picture of Judah and Tamar and to say that that is not an anomaly. Jesus scorning the shame at the cross, Jesus enduring the shame and taking it upon himself that God, all the way back at the beginning, as he works out his plans and purposes, is able to redeem these shameful, these guilt-ridden, these these sin-infested scenes to bring about his purposes of wholeness and freedom, of life and security. And he doesn't do it by ignoring it, And he doesn't do it by setting some unrealistic and unreachable standard that we have to meet. But he does it by stepping into that shame and that guilt, that failure and that mess, and redeeming it for his good, his gracious purposes. If you hang around till July, I hope you do, we'll be in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's like the 23rd of July. Ephesians chapter 1, thinking about this enormous picture of God's eternal salvation, His plan from before the world began, is for the praise of His glorious grace. That in all of it, what God wants to have on display and rejoiced in and accepted and received and trusted in is his undeserved kindness to people. In thinking about this, I was uh, reading a very helpful book called Shame Interrupted. And this is what Ed Welsh says about this that many of us would be experiencing in different ways. He says, ironically... 
despite its reputation for separating the elite from the untouchable, shame has no prejudice or preferences. It insinuates its way into the essence of rich and poor, majority and minority, failures and successes. It targets anyone and everyone. Shame is crude, intrusive, demanding and relentless. Shame attaches itself to our humanness and is more common than you think. These days, shame is emerging from the shadows and beginning to have its own identity. For example, if you talk to younger people about guilt, you might get blank, empty stares back at you. But if you talk about shame, feeling worthless, feeling like you're a failure, all of a sudden, a lot of people feel like you've deciphered the very core of their being. For them, shame is arguably the human problem. And if we're going to talk about it, that's a good thing and it's a good sign because if we give shame the attention that it deserves, if we speak about the unspeakable this week, that's where God's grace likes to do its best work. And so here at the very heartbeat of God's plan, we have a scene that's full of guilt and shame that's full of mess and sin, that's full of uh, uh, victimisation and abuse. And God doesn't ignore it or skip over it, He actually inserts it into this very significant moment and makes it a highlight to be then brought back up again when we get to think about the very family of the Lord Jesus, the Saviour of the world. And so, as we come to the details of chapter 38, we won't be able to deal with all of it, but here's three points that might give us some direction as we go along. Where we see that Judah is far away from God's promises, we see Tamar's desperate deception, and we finish with a very clear glimmer of grace. Uh, away from God's promises, our chapter opens with a very worrying picture of Judah, uh, who is meant to be the son of Jacob to carry the family line of promise. We see him wandering away from the family. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And the thing is, we saw something of Judah's character last week when he was the one that said of his younger brother Joseph, oh, maybe let's not kill him, let's sell him, that way we get some cash. And it seems like that kind of character that says, I won't kill my brother, I'll just sell him so that I can profit off him, is on display as he wanders away from the family of promise and he goes and very quickly and easily marries a Canaanite woman. And if you were here kind of the last 18 months and remember back to chapter 24 and 27, we heard very strongly that for the family of promise, marrying outside of the family of promise is a very bad thing that needs to be avoided at all cost. 
And actually, to avoid marrying outside the family, we saw caravans of camels and all sorts of crazy stories to try to avoid marrying outside of the family of promise. Judah very quickly, very easily, wanders away. He's away from God's promises and God's family of promise, and he marries a Canaanite woman. Uh, As we read this chapter in my growth group on Tuesday night, we got to verse 2, where our translation says, he married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant. Someone else was reading another translation that was very literal. There's two words there that basically he saw and he took. The idea of love that doesn't even enter the picture. As you hear those words, he saw and he took. Where else does that happen in the Bible? It happens when David sees a woman named Bathsheba, who also, foreshadowing, is going to show up in Jesus' genealogy. When David sees Bathsheba lying on a roof, he says, he saw and he takes. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the fruit that God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they saw and they took. We see a picture here that nothing good is going on. It's about consumption and it's about appetites. There's no picture of love and there's no picture of relationship. That's the character of Judah that we have on display. And that character is generational as very quickly we see uh, some years take place as Judah's son and he has two sons, Ur and Onan, and a third son, Shelah. And Ur, because of his evil behaviour, we're not told what that is, is put to death. There's accountability from God. And Onan then is given the job of sleeping with his sister-in-law in order to provide a future and security for his sister-in-law and his dead brother's family. We might think, That's the weirdest thing you could ever ask uh, a brother-in-law to do. But this is a very common thing in ancient times that crosses all kinds of cultures. It's called leveret marriage, brother-in-law marriage, where in order to provide for the future of the family and security for the the widow, the brother-in-law is to provide an heir, a son, a family, a future. Onan thinks that's a bad idea, but instead of saying, I don't want to do that, he just takes the sex bit without the fruitfulness bit. He takes the sex bit without giving the actual security, future and heir to Tamar. And because of Onan's sin of not being, uh, not taking responsibility for his brother's family, and for not doing what God had instructed them to do, he too is put to death. Now, just as a little aside, there's a very graphic picture here of how Onan avoided giving Tamar a son. That when they had sex, he made sure that he ejaculated on the ground instead of in Tamar. And over the centuries, people have just made up really weird theologies 
of contraception and masturbation from that verse. And the hot tip is, if there's one really weird verse in the Bible, don't build some great big theology of how life works off that one weird verse. And so, if please don't Google this. <laughs> you will find, if, if perchance you did, don't. Um, just really weird theologies. What can we say about sex and marriage from the weird verse of Onan spilling his semen on the ground? we can say that there is a, a, a very inextricable link between sex, marriage and procreation. That God made sex to be within the marriage of one man and one woman for life in order that his design for humanity to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it would come about. And the, the most I would want to say from this weird verse of Onan is to say that one of the things he does is that he separates sex from one of the chief purposes of sex, which is the fruitfulness of a married relationship that brings forth new humans. Right? That sex and marriage and the bringing forth of new humans, they all go together. Other than that, Let's not go down weird rabbit holes of contraception, masturbation, and Onan theology. There's the whole category. It's Onan theology. Don't have any part of it. Leave it over there. And let's keep going with the passage. We see this picture, and because of Onan's wickedness, he ends up dead as well. How and why God kind of held them accountable in that way the text doesn't say, but we're left with this picture of a third son who needs to be old enough to be married to, yet again, the widow Tamar. And that will be the family responsibility that Judah has no intention of meeting. And so, where does this leave poor Tamar? Rejected, alienated, isolated, abandoned, just go live back in your father's house. Of no good, of no use, with no future, with no hope in the world. And no doubt that she is carrying that kind of shame that says that she's not acceptable feeling humiliated and exposed and disgraced and less than human. And that's the thing about shame, isn't it? It makes you feel all those things and like you're less than human. But God doesn't leave Tamar abandoned and rejected. And she goes about this desperate deception which maybe wasn't the right thing to do, but God in his redeeming purposes, as he will do throughout this story time and time again, will take evil and turn it for good. And he will take her wrongdoing, her deception, 
and he will say, I'm going to redeem that for my good purposes, even to the point of Judah acknowledging that she acted in the right by the time we get to When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off a widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge, some assurance, some security, until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal, its cord, and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him and after she left she took off her veil and put on her in-law. But it's not that bad because he just thought she was a prostitute. That doesn't sound right, does it? It's not. Prostitution, though common in ancient times as it is today, was not seen as a good or acceptable way of having sex for the very reasons that we just talked about. Making it transactional and anonymous. The antithesis of what sex is meant to be, which is the most deep, deeply relational and connected thing for two people becoming one flesh, to make it anonymous and transactional is worse than cheapening it, isn't it? It's despising the purposes of God and how he created us to be and the reason that he gave sex to humanity in the first place. It seems an irredeemable situation, sleeping with your daughter-in-law, but your excuse, if, if you asked, well, I thought she was a temple prostitute. But in her shrewdness, Tamar says, give me your seal, it's cord, and the staff in your hand. Three things that probably mean absolutely nothing to us, but it's like her saying, give me your credit card, your phone, and your driver's licence. And sex makes you stupid, because he goes, sure, have my phone, my credit card, and my driver's licence. And she does it so that the day that she knows will come when she reveals that she is the anonymous prostitute and she can say to her father-in-law, I have taken into my own hands to do the right thing that you were never going to do. And once again, we have this weird picture of deception and veils and sleeping with the wrong person, playing out in the family of promise, where their own means of deception always come back around on them. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. As a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death which goes far beyond what the law would require when it was, when it was 
codified later in the book of Exodus, goes far beyond what God would require for prostitution and adultery. In fact, what the law would say in Leviticus chapter 20 is that that if you sleep with your daughter-in-law, you get put to death. Judah deserved to be put to death for his sin, for his neglect, for his abuse. And he says to Tamar with a high hand and with sheer hypocrisy, put her to death. The picture, isn't it, that we see all too often, double standards for men and women when it comes to sexual sin and failure. We often weigh those things very differently for men and women in our own twisted and distorted ways. But then Tamar comes to her father-in-law just as she's being brought out to be burned to death. I am pregnant by the man whose phone and driver's licence I hold in my hand. amazing picture, isn't it, of God doing what God tends to do, of taking evil, failure, and instead of saying, that's it, I want nothing to do with these sorts of people, he says, in my own justice and mercy, I'll absorb the sin and the judgment And I will turn this wickedness for my own good and gracious purposes. Tamar is acting like later Ruth would act in the book of Ruth, the foreign girl who says to the family of promise, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Tamar is aligning herself with the family of promise, even when she might be doing it unknowingly or accidentally or out of sheer desperation. She's aligning herself with God's gracious promises and his saving purposes. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And before we get to the glimmer of grace, consider this woman for a second. This woman neglected, abused, rejected, abandoned, victimised through shrewdness, maybe, deception, aligns herself with the promises of God and finds herself grafted in to the eternal family of the Saviour of the world where even her sin and shame where her abandonment and rejection would be dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus, where he takes the sin of the world and he takes the judgment of God. Fast forward 4,000 years to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And Tamar there is named as the very first woman in the family line of Jesus. 
Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. The five women in the genealogy of Jesus, notably absent, are the mothers of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Why those four? All of them foreign. Ruth the Moabites, Bathsheba the Hittite, Rahab and Tamar, both Canaanites. So Tamar gives us a picture not only of forgiveness, of cleansing, of wholeness by God's grace, but that his saving purposes are for the nations to be included in his family of promise. Grafted in just like Tamar was. Aligned with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Jesus. Tamar is that picture of God's gracious purposes to include people who are unlikely, as Andrew already uh, prayed. You see the genealogy of Jesus and you think the foolish, the desperate, the marginalised, the failures, the weak. God lifts them up and he includes them and he grafts them into his plans and his promises and gives them an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. And so we get at the very end of this chapter a glimmer of grace, not just in the birth of Perez and Zerah, who will be Again, the weird birth of twins that are wrapped up into the plans and promises of God and mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. But we see a glimmer of grace in the way that Judah responds to the revelation that he would father the twins of his daughter-in-law. He would provide the future. He would... He said of Tamar, She is more righteous than I. She acted rightly when I wouldn't. And the fact that he then refuses to the actions of Tamar, chapter 44 and 49, and to see that this this little glimmer of grace and growth will have its full effect when Judah needs to place himself in harm's way for the sake of his little brother Benjamin. But to finish, we're reminded that God doesn't just work in the lives of those who are put together. My great fear is that people would, A, not walk through these doors because they think they're not put together enough, they're not worthy, they're not deserving to be counted among God's people and to be included in the saving purposes of Jesus. is to totally miss the point of his grace and his overwhelming kindness that doesn't just come to the put together, to the upwardly mobile, it comes to all of us in our mess and our sin, our guilt and our shame. And he says in the midst of it, you can talk about it, you can acknowledge it and guess what? Jesus says, I'll carry that 
even to the point of death on the cross. I'll carry that guilt and shame so that you don't have to. And it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. His undeserved kindness, his overwhelming mercy, because he scorned the shame of the cross and he endured it for the joy set before him of gathering a people to himself for all eternity, people who don't deserve it, who didn't earn it, who can't achieve it, but who, with the empty hands of faith, acknowledging and not ignoring the reality of their own sin and shame, accept from Jesus that free forgiveness, the promise of cleansing, the gift of wholeness, What the hell is this chapter doing here? Well, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we thank you that there's no deception that we need to orchestrate, there's no trick that we need to conduct in order to gain your favour, your grace we merely need to receive and accept it, knowing that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross, he endured its pain, its rejection, he bore our sin, took your judgment, so that wholeness, cleansing, forgiveness, security, peace, might be made available to those who trust in him and walk in his ways. Please, Allow us all to know that, to know that we don't need to be all put together, that we can recognise our failings, the way that we failed others and that others have failed us, and bring them to the cross, knowing that always, for thousands and thousands of years, you have taken people like us in mess and sin, in brokenness and rejection. And you've grafted us into your eternal family. You've included us.